Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to Hang On To Your Hat, episode 32. And in the studio today, we have Anthony Breslin. You're beauty. Bad daddy, you're a naughty boy. These days, fatherhood is everywhere. You can't get away from it. Not the blokes haven't tried. If you're not a father, you've got a father. You're a son of a dad or a daughter of a bloke. But either way, being a dad is no picnic. The fear, the anger, the confusion and... Well, the love, of course. <laughs> oh. Eric Myers and Dan Lee, together with their special guests, are here to share the highs and lows, the joys and the agony of being a modern dad. But most of all, to let you know that you're not alone. <laughs> there it is, Derek. Seems like it's been ages since it, we've been in here. It actually has been ages. Yeah. I've, I've sort of... I'm out of... Out of um, Something out of my mind. Is it fresh again? The, yeah. The, the, the sound of Sammy screaming? Yes, it's, it's wonderful. So he'd be mature now, Sammy, wouldn't yeah, he? He's yeah, he's 27. 27. Yeah, yeah. An accountant. <laughs> we have with us Anthony Breslin, my old mate. My old mate, Anthony Breslin, um, who I... How long ago did I meet you? I have no idea. 20 oh, years ago? Oh, God, a long time ago. Yeah. Would have been, was it early 90s? Yeah, I was just trying to think who... How, who or when... I, I, Anthony's a painter and... and I remember meeting you when, at some point back then and you dressed in very colourful clothes and very painterly kind of clothes and I was, I was super impressed and jealous of that. Really? And I, yeah. Were you? I didn't know you that until now. Well, painter, <laughs> because painters seem to, and you embodied this very well, like, like seem to become like the art they're doing a bit yep. and it's so physical compared to being a writer um, and all in your head and on a keyboard, it was like you, and you had the, your your work pants were just covered in coloured paint, and it mm. was all just like you were so. Um, it was such a physical and immersive kind of thing because I and somewhere near that early time, I got a corner of your studio to write in. Yeah, right? that's somewhere near yep. the early days, and watching you come in and work, and then like do some big painting, and then cut it to pieces, and stick bits of it on other paintings, oh. and then. Like it was just so um, opposite to my existence, which was this kind of neurotic, <laughs> internalized. Make you feel guilty just when you just sit there. You know, I, I, this is how I've only imagined. I've seen painters work a bit, yeah, not a great deal, but writers. I can only imagine you just kind of sit there. It's then horrible. you go get a coffee. Then you sit there. And, and you're not. I don't moving. know. My only imagination of writing is just to sit there wishing you were writing. Yeah, like I'm going to get one of those stand-up desks so I can move around too. And I mean, because I was, I just loved the the physicality of what you were doing, and I I just was so envious of that. I've often thought about being a painter just so that I could stand <laughs> back from the work. Yeah. Well, my so, my my art was very physical, mm. you know, and I was covered in paint. All my clothes were covered in paint because it became my full-time living and I had mm. all these contracts I had to fill. I had to make art for all these different shows all around Australia and overseas. And mm. so there was, I was just covered in paint all the time because I had to keep working and working and working to live up to all the shows I had lined up ahead mm. of time. So it's a practical thing, but it, but the irony is it becomes a kind of expression of, of uh, not a fashion expression exactly, but it, but it's, it's very strikingly. Yeah. I was, like, I wasn't really conscious of that. 
No, but no, then no, also I end up developing performance pieces based around the act of creation. Yeah, based on what I was doing in the studio, I took it into a theatre, and yes, that was the next extension. Oh, of that's it all. right. And then yeah. and I'm, yeah, it was called Tribe, wasn't it? Yeah, it was paint called... an opera and paint. Yeah, and, and yeah. you sort of rolled around. You had dancers, had dancers and musicians, with and paint I on their bodies. designed all their costumes and their outfits. Oh, that sounds way better than uh, was... Ken Doan and yeah. uh, Morrison. Remember Morrison? the Ken Doan and the trumpet? Oh, Steve, is it Steve? James Morrison. James Morrison, yeah. yeah. Now, this was very physical and yeah, very awesome. uh, difficult physically. Yeah. I had to train to do it and it was very successful. Oh, wow. We did quite a lot of shows. Yeah. Did a big season at Chapel of Chapel. I found, found it liberating and, and it was the antithesis to what I was. To, I was getting further into my head and my alcoholism. In fact, I used to pass out and sleep in your studio I sometimes, didn't I? I used to come in in the morning to work and uh, you'd be laying on the floor <laughs> and I'd put a blanket over you and try and put something under your head oh, and then I wouldn't put the music up too high and you just sleep through the music. So I tried to make you comfortable all the time. Anthony's <laughs> a, a, a deeply kind and generous person and yeah, has always been. <laughs> and this, this is something I, I love about him. And, and But having that... Ability to watch, to be part of your studio and be in there and see all that. It just helped me to sort of get, try and get out of my head a little bit. Like a person like me shouldn't really be a writer. But then when you started putting those big pieces of paper on the wall. That's right. And turning it into an act of theatre, I thought that was really great. Well, exactly. And writing yeah. on them. And I still sort of do that now. I still have big sheets of paper, mm. which probably came from that experience of so i'm in there with your stuff and it's my little i think that i think i suggested to, it to you actually yeah you probably did i said to you why don't you put sheets of paper on the wall yeah because we were talking about how we do our practices and write on those sheets so it's more physical yeah 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 because i i write too and i'm working on my third book at the moment and um it's such a different process to be in yeah yeah it's, it's sort of just an endurance race to try and write a book is yeah, yeah. Full on. I'm interested in how pull it that, out, externalise yeah. it like that is so good. Mm. Yeah. I'm interested in how you, you, you're a visual artist, successful visual artist, and then what what t- sort of triggered the whole idea of doing the physical stage play thing? Where people keep commenting, wow, the way you paint is poetic, or like was it about feedback? Um, was Danny going, wow, it's amazing how you – some people Brand. come to the studio. I very rarely let people watch me work yeah. because I was so physi- I was so physical. Yeah. Like I was um, an athlete. You know, I, I'd competed in powerlifting competitions and um, bodybuilding competitions, and I was fully into training. I was very yeah. fit, very strong. So I used that in my work, and um, my work is very physical. And one by doing it, I thought I could turn this into a piece of theatre. But the first time I really did it was in my opera. I went to Myers in Melbourne and said to them, you know, can I have all your windows? I want to do make 100 paintings in uh, a week and um, sell them through the window um, and have raised money for charity for these TLC for kids, which helps sick kids. Mm. Um, I didn't think Myers were going to actually give me the most expensive retail windows in Australia. Yeah. But they did. Not only did they give them to me, they designed them all, put my name all over it, did flyers all through the city, was on the news three times. It was a huge project. So I raised $24,000. I was exhausted at the end of the week because I was working eight hours a day yeah. making paintings and people were coming to the windows, crowds of people and pointing, I want number 22 and number 23. So I had staff coming in, grabbing the painting off the wow. wall. Wow. Myers would wrap it and they'd give it to the client and the client would be waving at the window going, got my painting. Uh, it was amazing because you raised so, so much awesome. money and then yeah. I donated all that money to our for kids. And that started the whole theatrical beginnings mm. of – what was possible. So I did a lot of projects like that. I was back in my windows three years later doing painting celebrities 
into this invention of an upright painting that I invented. Because they came to me and said, we want you to paint these celebrities like Molly Meldrum and Helen Capolis and um, who else was it? Um, Vanessa Amorossi and Ron Barassi. And I said, I don't want to paint portraits of them in the window. That's just the conventional thing an artist is mm. supposed to do. Yeah. I'll paint them into my own paintings. So they have to come in white jumpsuits and I'll paint them so they'll disappear into this oh, huge right. head. They're physically in the... Yeah, yeah. yeah. right. <laughs> like a mobile. So I was always, it was always again, it was again, it was like me against time. Yes. The athlete as the artist. I had to, 50 minutes to do it and I had to kill myself to do it. So that's began the whole process of doing all this performance stuff, which led oh. to my operas and all that kind of stuff as well. Wow, what a fantastic And journey. And also what, what I got from being around you working was that this this idea that, well, you, you, you were killing your darlings all the time because I, I always talk about how I, you did this amazing painting and then I'd be looking at it because I'm just sitting there and I'd be looking at it for a week and really getting familiar with it and then you'd come in and slash it, take a piece of it out and stick it on something else and yeah. stuff. And your, your attitude was very about the process and, and it doesn't matter about the, the outcome in a way, it's... It's much more dynamic than that, mm. and and you don't sort of own this. And, and a lot of our discussion came out of that, I reckon. Yeah, about- and that's where the, the performance stuff came from. Yeah. But also, it's, if it's- I wasn't happy with something, I didn't care what other people thought of it. They said, right. it's great, we love it. I said, no, I'm not happy with it, I'm slashing it. Yeah. And I'd slash it and recycle the bits that worked yeah. and use them in other paintings. But And just do it. Like, yeah. you don't have to – so what if it's – No, but I had to finish a lot of paintings because yeah. I was doing six or seven solo shows a year – Mm. And I had to supply 30 paintings for those shows at least. And then I started getting orders from overseas where I had to do 60 paintings, 50 paintings for other galleries that wanted to on-sell them. It became yeah. crazy. So you can't you be know? precious in a way with, with that. Well, There's a line you've got to draw, but I was yeah. obsessive, completely obsessive, workaholic, Yeah, you know, pushing myself to the limit all the time. So I just worked around the clock. Yeah. And if I needed drugs to help me get through the night to keep working, I would yeah. do that too, you know. But So I pushed everything to number 11 because to have a career on that level for that many years mm. takes a lot out of you and I think that's probably the reason why I ended up getting cancer. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So then, well, that's been the, the, the other huge thing for you in, in recent time. Like when did you get the um, I got diagnosed um, in 2014 in the middle and I had a bone marrow transplant in 2015. Mm. And uh, it's been brutal because the yeah. bone marrow transplant's brutal. My brother had the same leukemia as me and he died. Mm. Um, he didn't get through the, the transplant. Right. So I got I survived the transplant, but I know I'm paying the price. I've got a disease now that cripples me mm. from the transplant and I've got stage five kidney failure. So I'm walking around with stage five kidney failure now. Mm. Um, You've had that for a while though. I right? have and I keep hovering above going back on dialysis again or needing a kidney transplant. I kept using all, all different alternative therapies to try and keep me from having a kidney transplant. The graft versus host is such a fucking tragedy in that, in that you know, you, you get the cancer cured, don't you, yeah. ostensibly, but then your body starts fighting the, the graft. Yeah. So then it's, it's fucking disintegrating parts of your body. No, most people don't understand what graft versus host disease is, mm. but it's terrible disease. It, mm. it causes me, I mean, pain every day. Mm. from my legs to my eyes because it attacks all my body. It attacks my back. I've got graphosis. There's all in my stomach. My stomach's like full of rocks. So it's sort of like scar tissue and stuff, is it? Yeah, like, build up of yeah. just your bo- the new immune system rejecting your body, Does attacking not, you everywhere. It doesn't happen to everyone or, 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 or it's an unavoidable part of... 
Some people it doesn't happen to, mm. but um, like I met a guy in hospital. I spent, I still spend a lot of time in hospital because uh, mm. I've got so many problems. Um, yeah. I met a guy not too long ago in hospital that had didn't have any graft first host disease, had a transplant. Wow. Um, but um, he, he, his came back. That's what happens oh, right. because the, the rejection of the new immune system attacking the body kills off any existence of the old stem cells that could oh. be there or the, or the old leukemia right. that can come back. Um, so it keeps it at bay. So if you don't get any graft host disease, you're highly susceptible to getting back what you had. Oh, and when that happens, you're dead. So you want – well, so the graft host is a, is a good sign – in the initially, yeah, the the, the like, so this is where it's so such a you want a little bit of it, idea. but mine's severe. Yeah, mine's same with mine, worse uh, than most friends. people. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, is this terrible. is it is it manageable? Does it fade away, or is this just how it, it can is? burn out? Yeah, um, they reckon mine won't burn out, but you just don't know. Mm. So I try. I've got lots of alternative therapists I work with to do everything I can mm. to stay, you know, keep going. Is that as well as what the what the medicine the medicine men say? The, the yeah, well, the me- the doctors all the doctors can give me is immunosuppressants. Yeah, and the immunosuppressants they've given me to keep me alive in the past when the graft versus disease was really bad yeah. um, have given me osteoporosis, kidney failure, and wrecked my eyes with cataracts. I just had two operations on my eyes. So the repercussions of the medication is if you survive it, the medication. And I've just had, you know, cancer cut off my face, um, warts cut off my face, and cysts cut off my face, all caused from immunosuppressant drugs. So they stuff you up in so many other ways, that's for sure. Yeah, it's it's taking with one hand and taking away with the other. Yeah. 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 So it's tough. And and in the middle of all that – you had a kid. I had a kid. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, do you want to tell you about that? Yeah, I'd yeah. Love to. Well, um, the, um, you know, when when I had my career going, and everything, I was a bit of a womanizer. I had you know lots of different flings and affairs all over the place, and one of them ended up becoming pregnant, and um, she refused to have an abortion and wanted to have the child, and I was really didn't want her to at all. Yeah. Um, even though part of me felt guilty. What age were you? Um, I was how old was I? I was. Um, uh, in my forties, forty-three. Yep. Um, it was very confronting for me to have somebody um decide to have a child um, that was partially mine, of course, that I didn't want one to have, mm. and I felt guilty wanting her to have an abortion, but I just didn't want that responsibility. I didn't want to be tied to her for the rest of my life when I didn't have the feelings for her that I was going to be in a relationship with her. Mm. Um, but. She refused and she was going to have the child. So then I had to emotionally do a, a flip around because I was never going to not acknowledge my child and not be part of his life. So then I had to um, accept it and go with it. But I think what was the most confronting thing for me was that um, there was part of me that was because of my upbringing, what I'd been through, um, I was brought up um, in a pretty tough environment. My mother was depressed all the time. My father was an alcoholic. He used to beat me on the weekends and my brother up. I didn't want to be vulnerable to f- being in love with my own child. Mm. I didn't want all that was going to bring with it, all yep. the pain and potential suffering of mm. being attached and being vulnerable. I didn't want – that's probably the thing that I, I – why I didn't want to have a child and why I avoided it and tried to avoid it. But Understand that fear. Yeah, you're exposed. Even Once when you you're deliberately trying to get oh, a yeah. kid, you, you have that fear. 
Yeah, it's vulnerable. You're suddenly vulnerable, right? Yeah, you're vulnerable. Yeah, Yeah, you are. If you're trying to avoid being vulnerable, it's tough because you can't Mm. really, unless you just decide not to be part of the kid's life, and I couldn't do that. No, well, that's right. And it's it's, it's a great vulnerability. Yeah. But there's no doubt, I mean, suddenly you, you know, the potential for pain and loss. Yeah. But, you know, vulnerabilities, you know, important, isn't it? Yeah. So you're running hot, you're a uh, fit, uh, successful, womanizing mm. artist. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, was I was traveling the world, had a great everything career. Was everything was on number 11. Yeah. It was, you know, it was hard work and it was dysfunctional on many levels, you yeah. know. Mm. Uh, but it was also, you know, awesome to have that opportunity to yeah. be able to make a really good living out of being an artist and not having to compromise and doing exactly what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it um, was fantastic, you know, to have that mm. because it's very, so rare that in yeah. Australia – and I managed that for nearly 20 years yeah. doing that. Yeah. Um, how, on the rare front, how many peers would you have at or above your your level? Like would you know, would you have a – is it like rock stars where you're going to got to go hang hang with each other because no one else understands the pressure or anything like that? <laughs> I didn't have many. No, that's <laughs> Dad's for sure. laughing because <laughs> my naivety is just beyond <laughs> comprehension. <laughs> I didn't have many, no. It's yeah. But it's different. I guess I can only speak for myself, of course. But being an artist is different from being a singer, for example. If you, you know, as all the work goes into making a song, I can I know. But when you made the song, it can be reproduced over and over again. Oh, yeah. My art was about me making every single bit of it. I never had any assistance to people making art. They couldn't, and so I've got to keep on manufacturing all the time. Yeah. Um, and it's unrelenting at that level that I was at because I wasn't putting the prices up and up and up all the time. That sold for quite a few thousand dollars each. But, you know, if you're selling $30,000 paintings, you don't have to make a huge amount of them to make good mo- good money. Mm. But then 50% of it's going to your dealers, and I dealers in every state, taking 50%. Um, and 10% it would cost me to make a painting because mine are quite expensive to produce. Mm. So you have to make a lot of paintings and sell a lot of paintings to make money. You know, so the perception is you're a multi, you know, you must be a multi-thousandaire <laughs> or a multi-millionaire. The perception is, wow, that guy must be doing well. But the reality, as always, is what you get Success is don't probably about the same. No, but I was grateful to someone make a good doing well in their normal, in a you normal know, definitely career. grateful. And I own my apartment now from yeah. paintings. And I ended up buying a church and um, converting it into an arts hub and having building oh, three wow. floors there, and becoming the builder. Because I was just unstoppable, you know, and yeah. um, we ran classes there, had big exhibitions there, put a cafe in there. It was a big, big production. Wow, where was that? Yeah, in Carnegie. It was called the Breslin Gallery. Yeah. But then I got struck with leukaemia and then I couldn't manage it anymore. I was, you know, it's going to kill me. Yeah. Yeah, I was in hospital all the time and mm. um, I didn't know how long I was going to survive. So, man, that's such difficult. a sudden smack stop, right? When, you, when you're yeah. moving that fast and then... Uh, it was a massive change in my life. I mean, I went from... It came on so quickly. Yeah. I um, I got diagnosed with uh, myodysplastic syndrome, which is a blood cancer. And then I went off to do an ayahuasca retreat and the ayahuasca retreat really took it out of me. Yeah. And um, a few days later, I was diagnosed with full-blown leukaemia, rushed to hospital. Before I knew it, I was had a drip in me and I was on the on chemotherapy. And I thought, I can't believe this is happening to me. The shock was just brutal. And two yeah. days before that happened, my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. 
So we were both in the Alfred together, oh, different yeah. wards. Yeah. It's just incom- it's uncomprehending. And I was back in the ward when my brother died oh. as well. So it was a pretty trippy experience. Did he die while you were oh, that recently? And no, he died quite a few years ago. But oh, I was in right. the same in ward the same that he way. was in mm. on, on chemotherapy and, go, and thinking, I'm going to die too because that's what happened to him. He got the same leukemia as me and he died. And I just thought, well... I'm going to die too. So know. how do you process that or, or do can you, when all this is going on, do you, are you able to, what, what, what's your thought processes about? Um, I mean, at the beginning I was, a, obviously a I was afraid question, and sho- in shock. Mm. But then I guess I had a very strong meditation practice and yoga mm. practice and that really helped me a lot because I suffered a lot, especially the first um, few months because I spent two five-week periods in isolation. I wasn't oh. allowed to go outside. I wasn't allowed to go out of the room. I was locked in a room for nearly six weeks t- twice. Is that the immunosuppressant um, thing? But, yeah, because I had no immune system and yeah. um, they had to get me – because I had MDS, it was making it very slow for the chemotherapy to put me into remission and then it took ages to put me into remission. I had, I had a virus and I only died from that. Um, I was shaking for days trying to ride it off because my immune system was so repressed. Um, but once I got through that six weeks, they let me out for two weeks and then I could feel the, hear the birds, feel the sun, put my feet on the grass again, all those things you take for granted. Mm. I was just looking out a window every day and drawing all the time. That's all I was doing. It's that irony, isn't it, of getting really sick that you, you start to value things correctly when yeah. when when it's taken away or threatened to be taken away. Like yeah. If you had such a fast li- lifestyle and then, you know, having to stop and then. Yeah. There was a big lesson in seeing that I was running away from myself my whole life. Mm. Um, I was driven all the time to escape my own, sitting with my own silence. And being in that situation, I had no choice. I had to sit with Mm. what was happening at my own mortality. Mm. And um, that's what I did. I treated it as um, a second life for how long. It might have been last for a week or a month. But I had the opportunity to dig deep and to really go into myself. Mm. And when I did, um, it took the fear was gone and I was very happy to die mm. in many ways. I was kind of ready as I could be, you know, very accepting of my situation and less attached to being what I thought I wanted to be before I got sick, if that makes sense. Isn't it? Yeah, it's, 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 it's sort of the work that we should all do at some point, right, mm. with our lives. But it takes having to have everything stripped away from you. And a lot of people say the best thing that. that happened to them was they got cancer. Yeah, I've heard that um, too. You know, and if I had just got cancer, that would have been bad enough. But because I've had all, all these other cards dealt to me as well, oh, yeah. it's been an endurance race. <laughs> and I've had three bouts of double pneumonia as well. So I've nearly five times I've been about to die and I somehow I didn't. Um, I come back and even though I've been on life support, I've been in intensive care, for what, I've been on the works, you know. Every and time I call you, you go, you've just nearly died again. I'm yeah. Like, fucking hell. It wasn't that long ago they only died again. And um, I just think it's a running joke in my head because I just it's think it's not weird. me. There's greater forces at play that just go, it's not your time, you're staying. Well, you've got to, yeah, how else can you look at it? And I take responsibility because I've watched so many people in the hospital die mm. and I've seen, watched friends die. And not long ago, about two months ago, I watched a friend die from leukemia. They were trying to get her ready for a bone marrow transplant and she just wasn't strong enough, you know, right. and I was mentoring her, trying to help her because she was really afraid. 
Um, and she had a, a little girl, a daughter. And I would say to her, look, you know, you don't own your daughter. She's not your possession. Mm. She's got a life. She's got her own adventures to have. And she's going to go on whether you're there or not because she has her own trajectory. And that's how I, I see my relationship with my son. I don't own him. He's not my possession. Right. Um, and that helps in a way too, I think. And she found it hard to get her head around that, but then she started to. Mm. Um, and Because I, I said to her, you've got to look after yourself. You've got to go into yourself. Mm. You can't facilitate your child. There's other people around to help you and support you. They're there. You know, because it's just too difficult to do both at the same time. And I imagine you'd be you'd be in danger of trying to jam, you know, fifteen years of parenting mm. into an unknown period of yeah. time. You don't know what you've got left, yeah. and it's 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 frightening, especially when you're sick and you're trying to process your own mortality. All these mm. things at the same time, it could you know potentially be if done wrong could be maybe damaging for the kid because you're yeah. just like. You know, just trying to jam them with advice or parenting or mm. something like that. Mm-hmm. That's a great. That's a it's great quite an intense advice. process for her. Yeah. Um. And I was hung out with her kid and her while she was really going through a lot of really tough stuff. And in the end, she she died. She started to die. I went and rushed into the hospital, sat with her, yeah. and watched her die. And her little daughter was coming in and out of the room because she didn't really know what was going on. Yeah. She knew her mother was going and she wasn't going to come back. But it was a very strange situation. Oh. But that's unfortunately life. And I've seen lots of people, I've sat with quite a few people and watched them die. Um, and you become less afraid of it and you see it as a, a natural process. And This is the crazy thing. It's, it's, it's as big as life, death, yeah. right? But we, we hide it and we, we, um, hide it we don't and like talking terrifying. about it. And yeah. that's a shame, I think. And it's not that we shouldn't be terrified or frightened. We, we should be whatever we are toward it. Mm. But... We're not going to get any better at processing it or, or, or dare I say, get the benefits of it. Mm. You know, like there's, there's certainly, like, like you said, there's, there's positives or, or there's, there's, um, there's work that you get to do because of that and see and feel things and not take them for granted, you know. Yeah. As, neg- as bad as it is, like we, we, we sort of waste death. But one of the, mortality one of the biggest a, uh, superpowers that humans have that maybe other animals might not have, is the ability to completely and utterly go into denial of things. Yeah. yeah. Right? And we live our That's whole so lives in denial. Yeah. But, you know, it's just a percentage game. Yeah. Go through all this when you're 50. Mm. It's, you're really going, oh, you know, like when's, when do people say it's too soon or it's a tragedy? And, it, and it's just like it's, it's, yeah. it's limited anyway. It's yeah. coming. I know yeah. it's coming it's for coming. all of us. We've got to start getting. And I'm just over amazed that. at my own. Our culture just, just doesn't want to deal with it, it at all. Yeah. And I'm really into it. I mean, I, really, I talk about it all the time because I don't see any difference between death and life in many ways. Yeah. Right. Um, especially well, especially now. when it's your. Yeah. You're just. You're so fully pushed into a position where you have to face it. And it's yeah. amazing that yeah. it takes us that yeah. often. To um, and it's just a thing, right? Well, even when I, was, when I went to India before I got sick. I watched about about 50 cremations. I'd watch them bring all the bodies down and put them on the fires. I'd just stand there right in front of the body and watch it burn because I I wanted to do that because Mm. that's the process of life right in front of you. And here everything's hidden away Mm. because I spend so much time in hospital. I see so many people that are sick, so many people that are suffering, get to know people who are about to die and watch them die. And that's reality. But it's all put away in wards where people, the average person doesn't have to deal with it. They don't have to see it. 
you know, and um, so it's not part of their life. Mm. So they just avoid having to deal with or thinking about death because it's not in front of them, it's not around them. And I think that's a real loss. Yes. Um, And also there's this fear that this is the only life I have, this is the end. And because I don't think that way, I'm, Mm. I'm, and doing a meditation practice every day and even using experimental plant medicines to help transcend the mind and take the mind to other places, I find has helped me a lot um, yeah. to have one foot here and one foot somewhere else all so the time. So you're doing important work. Well, yeah, I think it's important for me because the, mm. I feel like I'm ready on most days to go um, in many ways. Like I'm not overly attached to being here anymore. Packed at the door there. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not living for my son either, so I'm not attached to being here because he needs me. Um, sure, I'd like to be around and see him grow up, but if I'm not, it's okay. He'll yeah. be okay because he has his own life to and lead. And getting that perspective as a parent is is really good. I mean, I try to remind myself of that with my kids when when I'm worrying too much about their life to come, you know, and and I have to go, well, it's not for me – they are, like you said, their own entity. Yeah. They're their own self and I don't own them. I've brought them in and I'm I'm going to try to protect them basically, but we, we overprotect them too, you know. No, because we, we over- definitely do. We, we have this weird possession thing of it. It's it's kind of like you're on your own, son, Yeah, a bit. Yeah. And <laughs> we, should be. We, we usually, I think in many ways, we project that overprotection onto our children because we have that over-preciousness over about ourselves. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, so yeah. it just Definitely. transpires to the child. Well, that's you know? what's happened with you. You, you, had to, you, um, you know, became less self-oriented through this. Yeah. So you're able to let go of him a bit more and let him be his, have his journey. Yeah. Yeah. So when what? So when, how old was he when you got sick? Um, how old was he when you got sick? Like you, you had a relationship with him already. Oh yeah, I was I was there for the birth, and I was t- totally into it. Um, I was, uh, his mother had a cesarean, and she was really sick. So I slept on the floor of her house and looked after her for the first ten days, and did the mm. best I could to help her with him and everything. So I was exhausted. So I got an indication of, you know, sleeplessness yeah. um, because she couldn't walk. She was really in a lot of pain. Yeah. Um, and then from then on, I was down there all the time, seeing him, having started having him overnight, looking after him, taking him out for the day, taking yeah. him to school, all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. And um, then she met a guy. Um, it was her cousin's um, friend who was over from the Netherlands. And they fell in love straight away and they began this relationship because she wanted to have a relationship with me, but I, I, I didn't want to have a relationship with her. I, I wanted to be in her in life and be friends with her mm. and um, parent the child together. And we did that. Once I got my head around it all, we did that really well. Um, but then when she fell for him, he wanted her to come over to, to Holland. So she asked me for permission to go to Holland and I said, oh, sure. Um, but how long are you going to go for? And she said, a month. I said, Okay. So it was difficult to let her let him go for a month, mm. but I did. And then she rang me from Holland and said, um, "I got something to tell you." And I'm like, "What?" And she goes, "I'm pregnant again." And what? Mm. So she wanted to stay for three months in Holland. So I found that really difficult because I couldn't make her come back. Yeah. Um, I didn't know if she was ever going to come back. If I was ever going to see my son again, I started going down the track of, "I'm never going to see him again." You know, blah blah blah. Mm. Um, she came back after three months, but it was very difficult because she came back with him 
And by then, he was all over him and treating him like his father. And all the work I'd put in, I felt like, you know, it was down the toilet because I'd start all over again. And part of me wanted to give up at that point. I didn't want to start from scratch and go through, you know, getting to know my son and getting him to know me all over again. Because at that age, three months is a long time, right? Yeah, it was a few years into – he was a few years old now. Um, And it was difficult. But I had to do that. I had to – but the the stepfather's a lovely guy and we go along very well. Mm. And I started from scratch again and built up a relationship with him again and let him – I also had to adjust the fact, to the fact he was calling his stepfather dad as well as me. Mm. So he had two dads and I had to get over that pretty quickly and think, well, it's probably a good thing he's got two dads. Mm. But then the next thing that happened was I got diagnosed with um, cancer and that changed everything again. It made it really difficult to, to father my child. I couldn't have him overnight. He couldn't understand what was happening to me. He came into yeah. hospital to see me a few times, but yeah. it was difficult, yeah, really challenging. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's, it's in some ways that situation where you've got uh, your son has a, a mother who's raised, you know, raising another family and stuff like that and a partner who she loves, so – it's kind of got to be comforting in some ways knowing that your yeah. son is all, all right. Like, can you imagine what it might feel like if, like, let's say you were raising a child on your own and then you got sick? Like, it's, yeah, it's, it's got to be a bit frightening like that. Yeah, I was you really know? happy that she met him yeah. because he's a lovely guy and yeah. it's really made her life, you know, wonderful being yeah. with him. Yeah. And I really love the other, the other two kids they've got now. Mm. They're great. Um, so it's turned out well overall, yeah. but it was very hard to let them go and live in Holland. Mm. That was the next mm. stage that happened. Because yeah. um, they came to me, it was a bit of a shock when they said, we want to move to Holland because he's Dutch. And But but he said to me, it's not my idea to move to Holland. I would never do that. It's it's Le- uh, Lisa's idea. She wants to try something different. And they asked me if it was okay if they went. And that was a really difficult um, decision because we all cried together and held each other. And, and I said, look... It's he's not. I don't. He's not my possession, and mm. I can't look after him because I'm. I don't know how long I'm going to be around for, mm. and I'm too sick. I'm too unwell. Um, so the best thing I can do is let you have the life that you want and let you go. And so that's what I did. Yeah, yeah. man, hard. There's just been this. This <laughs> so many challenges in a row. <laughs> yeah. There's been a few. Yeah. They kind of they're all been really difficult and confronting, but yeah. they also help you grow a lot too. You're forced to grow, yeah, and you're you're forced to kind of practice what you believe. It's easy for me to say I don't own my son; he's not my possession. I, I I want the best for him, and the best for him is often not to be with me because I can't look after him. I can't give him what he needs, so I have to let him go. You know, and that's not easy, but. You have to practice what you believe. So I it's think. like this whole thing has kept just pushing you to do that, to, to really put your make your actions match your your beliefs and your talk, you know. Yeah, I think Which that's most important. Of us never have to do. Yeah, yeah, because I think that lots of people have ethics, you know, obviously. But their ethics can be can change according to who's around. If there's nobody around and they find a wallet Ethically, they might decide to talk themselves into keeping it. Yes. But if they find a wallet and there's two of their friends next to them, they might 
decide, oh, look, I sh- I, I, in front of their friends to proclaim I'm going to bring it down to the police station because yeah. the right thing to do. And I think ethics are something that Split are, it three are, ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ethics are something that are internal and they shouldn't change according to what's around. Yeah. So, yeah. And I'm really into that idea. So that's f- I've got to follow through with that the best I can. Do you use Skype and all these modern ways to yeah. chat? chat yeah, with- we talk at mo- most weeks. We yeah. talk on the phone. And that's, you know, being got better and better, you know. Does he have time. a better grasp of your illness and health issues now? Not really. I mean, he's that age where he never, doesn't ask me how I am or what I'm right. going through, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know. And um, and it's been like that for as long as he can remember, presumably, too. Yeah, well, just recently I talked to him on Skype and or on, um, sorry, Messenger or whatever it is, WhatsApp. And um, half my face was bandaged up because he's had an eye operation. And um, I just said to him, like, he's had an eye operation. That's why my face is bandaged up. But does he ask me any questions about it? (laughs) He just talks to me like there's nothing, no bet. Half my face isn't bandaged up, you know. Let's talk about (laughs) Minecraft. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's it's interesting, isn't it? My nine-year-old daughter wrote me an apology, two-page apology letter the other day. Because I was like, (laughs) been getting the migraines a bit, right? And, and, And I just go... Kids, I'm all right. I can function. I can cook your dinner and do all this stuff, but don't sit either side of me and have a screaming match at each other because it just changes the way I hear your voices. Mm. So I'm, I love you and I love hearing your stories, but you just just fuck off, <laughs> right? Basically, yeah. right? And then it got came to a head where they're screaming and carrying on, and I'm going, oh, this is please, please, just yeah, just I'm begging you, just leave me alone. And uh, and then she's come back. And the letter said, I should have brought it to read it because my memory is <laughs> terrible, but it pretty much says, I'm really so sorry, Dad, I love you, blah, 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 the usual kind of apology. Page two, I hope you get over these Notes. migraines because, you know, then you can spend more time you know, listening to how we feel. Yeah, <laughs> rather than just how you feel, yeah. it's like oh, it's the butt God, page. There's the, the butt page. There's the bird. Sorry, yeah, but. the butt. Yeah, yeah, it's like oh, okay, fair enough. They don't. No, yeah, they're, they're so not funny. Aware. Kids, I'm happy for them to not. No idea really that you're actually a separate entity. Yeah, and that you have your own issues, your own things you're going s- on. Superhuman. Just, just well, and you've been you've been a certain thing to them forever too. It's not mm. too. You have. I didn't find that when I had kids of my own was when I, I started talking with my parents differently. Like I was able to, because we were both parents. The classic apology phone call. That's right. Yeah. My <laughs> brother did that. Well, straight away you, you stop any kind of blame you have for, you know, like suddenly any any problems you had are just like marvelling at how they coped at all Yeah, with with having us. And then, and then also wanting to just talk as adults now and, and let go of any kind of, you know, grievances between, mm. like, like, forget about feeling bad about mm. something you did when I was a kid mm. or whatever. Let's, we're both parents now. We're on the same. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Let's talk honestly yeah. what it was yeah. like. And I've, both my parents, I've kind of grilled a bit to say, what was it like in your actual emotional experience? Yeah. Being 23 and having kids and, you know, and. You know, big parties and like, well, the fuck, twenty three. Yeah, Jesus it's hard Christ. to comprehend, especially if you yeah. had kids older. That yeah. what, what it's like to have kids at nineteen or twenty. You know, it'd be yeah. intense experience. Yeah. And, yeah, especially having four or five of them, like those older generations did, like yeah. my parents did. And, I, I saw, I, I saw a friend of ours um, yesterday who's just she's just had a, 
baby and about six weeks ago or something like that. And so she's all, uh, you know, underslept and she's been at home with the baby. Her husband's been working and, and she lives next door. And, and she's sort of, there's a bit of a manic thing going on of just like, and, and isolation and all that stuff. And, um, and we were talking about how the, suddenly the judgmental switch goes off. You know, like you used to look at people in the supermarket with their kids getting angry or whatever. You're like, oh, terrible parents and all that sort of stuff. And suddenly now oh, you're like, you mate. just don't blame any parent. All parents <laughs> yeah. are now allies. I just said to a guy from school pickup, he had his little one with him to pick up his daughters mm. at the school. And his son was literally st- in the middle of the- where the bell went and all the kids came running out. His little kid, I couldn't tell you an age, but mm. was literally full tantruming on his back, <laughs> full volume, right? <laughs> full volume in the schoolyard. Yeah. And he's just sitting there, this like six foot something Irish guy, <laughs> really reasonably fresh immigrant. And I, and I was like, I said, oh, I've got to confess, mate. He goes, what? I said, I actually get pleasure out of this. <laughs> he goes, what? I said, I don't know, because it's not mine. Because <laughs> there's peace in my house right now. I get a pleasure out of there's just suddenly, knowing that yeah. there wasn't something I was doing wrong, they're all doing it, and that's what it is. A it's recalibration like, happens, doesn't it? And you think, oh, shit, it's like it's mm. so complex, what it's doing to your your sense of self, your yeah. all your life trajectory. Mm. And, yeah. Yeah. and if you end up with kids that have got Asperger's or oh, autism yeah. or physical disability, it can be really tough. There's a lot of Asperger's yeah. in my family. My niece, Just my nephew is judgy old Asperger's people. and it's but, tough. Yeah. yeah, really tough. Mm. You have a tough time with them. Yeah. Do crazy shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And But then it's like with everything, it's everyone – Finds a way, don't they? Yeah. And, and you can't really, com- even though we always do compare ourselves to other parents, you know, mm. like I seem to be coping less well and I have it much easier than some people, uh. ostensibly. Yeah. But we're all different people with different, um, you know, uh, thresholds yeah. and abilities. Exactly. And, you know, fun. so complex, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. how do you, yeah, right. So you you weren't able to see him much. Did he move pretty quickly after you got sick? No. Um, he moved about a year or so ago, and I was sick oh, right. five years ago. Yeah. So it was around for a while, and I was still seeing him the best I could, but it was it was difficult. I couldn't have him overnight. I'd, I'd see him, yeah. but I couldn't have him overnight. I was having him overnight for a few days in a row. And it's probably it's a impossible. High, highly dangerous to have kids of that age. Yeah, disease. We know they're they're like little. Like petri dishes, oh, aren't yeah, they? Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. It's not going to be good to have around. No, no. And yeah. I just haven't got the energy because I've got chronic fatigue too from my <sighs> from the graft versus host disease has given me right. chronic fatigue. Right. Mm. So I've got very poor endurance. I've got – and um, my muscles are all extremely weak now. I've gone from being a strong athlete to being very weak. I can do – every morning I get up and try and do three push-ups – and it's very difficult because my That's whole body more than what I can do. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm a wreck. So I, used to. I used to run around with him, play with him, do all kinds of things, take yeah. him to do all these. We got both got really into. I got him into rock climbing, um, but I can't do any of those things. I can't even. I can't even ride a bike. You know, I can't walk that far. So all that was taken away. Yeah. You know, that's a cruel contrast. Isn't uh, it? Yeah. yeah. When you're so athletic and physical yeah. and you lose it all. But that's probably how you got survived too, isn't it? Mm. The fact that you were. Yeah, that's 
probably healthy. because I, yeah, that's probably helped a lot in my survival because even the doctors are saying to me now, like not very few people survive what you've survived yeah. and including three bouts of double pneumonia. Yeah. Do you, did you, when you had come to terms with, with dying before and then you just keep surviving, mm. what, that must be a peculiar double-edged thing. Well, like I wanted to die a few of the times. Right. The second time I got pneumonia, I knew I had pneumonia because I could tell from the first time. Right. And um, I decided that I had enough. So I thought, I'm just going to sit at home and die. And that's what uh, I yeah. planned to do. So I sat at home for a couple of days. And by that point, I was getting very weak and I knew I was going down the loo. Right. But a friend intervened. It was just one of those things where the higher forces are played. Yeah. She rang me. I spoke to her on the phone. I played it all down. I didn't tell her how bad I was. And then she got off the phone. She thought, no, he's talking shit. So she got in the car and drove to my house and just I knocked on the door and I opened the door and said, what are you doing here? And she goes, get in the car. I know what you're trying to do. She knew I was basically doing a suicide hit um, because I just couldn't handle coming back again because coming back means I can't walk. I can't do anything. I'm so weak. I'm in bed and I've got to get up and try and walk again, start all over again and try and survive again. And it's just too hard. When you've been through it four or five times um, and all the times I've been in hospital, I just thought, I'm just happy to go. But here I am. So I survived that and then I survived it the next time as well. So, But usually when I get through those situations, my sister takes me in and I go and live with her for a while because I can't do anything for myself. Mm. And then when I can, I try and teach myself to do things again. Yeah. When I get strong enough, I go back and live on my own again. Yeah, that's what I've is been there doing. A, is there a kind of... Is there a kind of – do you remember actually deciding you were going to try and um, prepare yourself for, for understanding these things that we all need to do? Like like, like doing meditation, to, like we were talking about earlier about consciousness and, and, our, and our understanding of that and letting go of self and all these things that people do in meditation and other things. Did you, did you make a conscious decision to do that as a way of accepting your mortality? Like, did you strategize it? Did you go, right, yeah. I'm going to try to Well, I already totally- had a practice before I got sick. I had a meditation yeah. practice mm. and I'd been through some tough times before I got sick and um, I got into meditation mm. and I got into Buddhist philosophy and going to the temple and all that kind of stuff. So I was already aware of that kind of thing. And I also really got into doing a lot of community charity work and raising money for people less fortunate than myself mm. before I got sick. Mm. You know, I was runner-up citizen of the year in the city of Glenara mm. because I was nominated for all my charity work, all the money I'd raise for people. And I used to run free classes for disabled people and people with mental illness and pensioners at my, my gallery um, that I funded. So mm. I was already yeah, into all that stuff, not because I'm, I'm trying to say I'm the best person in the world, but because it's not about me. And you really realise that, you know, the only important thing or valid thing you can do on a day-to-day basis is try to help somebody else. And when I got sick um, and went through all that I've been through, that just compounded that even more. So even now I try to do whatever I can to support other people, including other cancer patients, um, in the hospital, whoever. And I still do charity work. I do whatever I can on every level because I feel that's the only purpose I have. 
And it, and it helps you. We know this helps. It definitely, it definitely helps like, you. It helps you with depression, helps you with everything. Well, Hugh, um, Hugh from the Resilience Project was in here talking about, you know, empathy and mindfulness and um, whatever the other one, gratitude. Yeah. And gratitude and empathy in, in, and in being of service to other people yeah. just gives you a kind of, gives you meaning, doesn't yeah, it? It gives exactly. you this meaning that's beyond all this other yeah. shit. Yeah. So it's kind of. That's all that matters really yeah. to me. You know, I've got enough money to eat tonight and I've got a place that I own and that's all I need. Mm. So anything else I can give away or I can do, I'll, I'll do it, you know, because I think it's, it makes me feel good and valid as a person. That's the thing. It's making you it, – it's actually making you – it's like there's no such thing really as, as total selflessness and, and altruism. Like it doesn't even have to be that. Like it actually makes people feel good to do Yeah, it does because selflessness do comes from a place – to a degree of believing that um, you're an individual and everyone else is separate from you. Yeah, yeah. And selfless, selflessness, that word is a, seems to um, put a barrier between you and another person that you're an in, actually an individual. Mm. But I don't fundamentally – I know that fundamentally I'm, I'm not really. It's an illusion that I'm an individual. But I'm joined to everybody. Everyone's joined to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. we talked about this before. So yeah. every day when I go out – and do things. I try and go out and do stuff every day because it's good for my mental health and to interact with mm. other people. But every person I can get eye contact with, I say hello to, I try and talk to, um, you know, and be loving and kind to those people because they're me and I'm them. There is no separateness between us. Why is that so often a company terminal illness or near terminal illness? You know, like I've, I, it seems like when people get that shock of, of, of either of those – they either just deny it and 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 get angry and don't and pretend it's not happening, or they go the other way and they they open up to the world, and you'll see people who it's very strange who who seem to have lost everything but seem happier. It's like Hugh talking about those kids in India that had nothing but were the most generous, kind kids, and then he back home in Australia, we've got everything and we're all riddled with anxiety and. You know what I mean? Yeah, and we're it's afraid so, of what we're going to lose. You sort of have to have yeah. everything taken away from you. you do, well, it helps. It to- helps. If you can survive having everything taken away from <laughs> oh, you yeah. because if your identity – my identity was definitely a huge amount of it was placed around my body Yeah, because I was very fit and um, the people of the opposite sex were attracted to me because of that reason. Mm. So, And I was, also the way I walked, the way I talked, the way I held myself mm. was so different being in a body that was 90 kilos, 85 kilos and strong and powerful mm. compared to now would I, I, I live in a body that's 64 kilos, uh, wasted away, I'm on a walking stick and I'm disabled. A completely different existence. Um, the world sees me in a different way. Yeah. Um, also, because yeah. I'm getting older too, but people will walk into me. Um, some people are, will see me and they'll get out of my way and help me, but I've fallen over on trams in the street um, because of my condition and people have just walked past me unsure what to do. It's like I'm, uh, I, don't, I don't know how to deal with this. Um, so it's really interesting mm. to go from being really seen right. or feeling seen to feeling like you're invisible um, to a degree, it's a really interesting process, and the invisible process helps you to be, to see that you're not what other people see, uh, and you're not whatever you try to project into the world. That's all illusionary as well. Mm. You know, it really connects you to the spirit inside, 
mm. or you go the other way and you go mad. You know, it depends on what, what you're built with and, and how you cope and how you can adapt. Yeah. And this surely is the reason why people say cancer was the best thing that happened to them. Yeah. You may have a lot of, hopefully you have less pain if, if, if possible, but you, your life may be shorter, but then what's what's length of life got to do with anything really? No, it's about quality. I mean, exactly. I, I, I mean, huge, some people live, yeah. they're just fucking miserable. Yeah. You know? I had to do a huge installation once for all these kids with terminal illnesses. I created mm. this whole world. Mm. All these performers I got in, I laid 300 metres of grass inside a warehouse and it was an incredible experience to see all these kids with terminal disease and their families come, you know, yeah. hundreds. Yeah. Um, but it was it was all about the fact that it didn't matter how long you lived for, it was the quality of that life. So I tried to give them this whole incredible adventure in the course of a day. Never could I imagine that I'd have to live that philosophy years later by getting so sick myself too. Mm. But it's a really interesting process because you see that there's some people that get a terminal illness and they pretend they actually want to live to the outside world, but they don't. They don't really. Because they're, when they're sick, they get seem to get more love, more attention. They become more seen. People seem to care about them more. And they go, do I really want to give this up? Because if I get well, then I won't have this anymore. Mm. People will go back to their own lives and they'll forget about me. Mm. So there's something valid about staying sick. And a lot of people choose to do that and die. Because if you want to live or try to live, you've got to empower yourself. And that means you've got to go, I need your empathy, I need your love, but I don't want your energy. I don't want to suck your energy off you. Mm. Um, and you have to fill that energy void yourself when you're sick to, to try and survive. You mm. know, you've got to find that spark all the time to survive every day. You know, And I've seen people that don't really want to live because they get loved more when they're dying. So they'd rather go that way. And something wrong with that. Yeah. It's just the truth. Mm. Yeah. Are you working? Like I, I work. Yeah, creating? I still I paint as much as I can now, but I can't do very much. Yeah. Um. You know, I've lost my career. I can't do solo solo show after solo show. I'm working on another exhibition, but since I've been sick, I've I've still managed to do quite a few things that um has been very challenging. I did some giant murals at Carnegie Station that the council commissioned me to do, and um. I just couldn't refuse. I still try and do stuff all the time. I was in a lot of pain doing it on yeah. a walking stick. But I still try and do things. I, I wrote a children's book since I've been sick. Yeah. It's been published. Can we put and, a, can, and, um, we'll put a link in the, uh, mm-hmm. in the notes. For oh, yeah, things. cool. It's called Brazania. And I'm working on my third book now. My wife's a children's librarian. So. <laughs> so, yeah. Hang on. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm doing an environmental book. Um, I'm doing a book with the School for Strike movement yeah. um, as well, which is yeah. a bit different from what I've done before with books. Mm. Um, so I still do stuff, still make yeah, art, yeah. do projects, do whatever I can. Yeah, I was going to say, did you? If you change the nature of your art, if you've gone from this kind of high intensity physical art and found a way to keep creating uh, that doesn't hurt, but it sounds like you just yeah I have still different, taking different methods that are, now. Yeah, yeah. Of how to make how to make stuff in yeah. a very different way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's mm. fantastic. Yeah. But I need to keep sane. I need to keep doing something or yeah. creative to, to stay sane. Yeah. Yeah. If you keep being placed back here, it must seem a bit like you're. you're it must. It must be easy to to get a bit kind of woo woo and mystical about it when you keep surviving. And yeah. You keep, like to go right. What's going on here? Like something mm. must be. There must be a reason for this. Yeah. You know. And, yeah. And then if that is to 
to do more work or to help people, you know. But no. that has a that has a bit of a I think that has a yeah. flip side that way of thinking. Yeah. Because then, you know, if someone is you know, if someone listening has lost someone, then it might be like, well they must right. They yeah, must yeah. they they must have had no reason, you know, to be around. Well, yeah, but like, I mean, I just imagine if you're in that position, yeah, if you're the person yeah. who's sick, it would be so strange that you'd have to it would be like, well what's going on here? I suppose you could get you could spend a lot of time searching for meaning that doesn't yeah. exist too. It's like the the why did it happen to me thing that people yeah. can get. I, I imagine that pretty quickly goes. Yeah, because it, it just is, right? Yeah. Well, I, I I actually never went through a lot of that. Mm. I didn't go through the whole why am I suffering so much? Why, why am I going through yeah. all this? And people will come to me and say it's really you know unfair what's happened to you. Right. And yeah. I go, why is it unfair if it happened to me? Is it unfair if it happened to Joe or Bill or yeah. Bob? It's there's such a thing as fair or unfair. It just is what it is, you know. Yeah. But there's a lot to be gleaned from suffering a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I, I do suffer a lot because I have chronic pain and yeah. um, every day. So I'm in pain all the time and, I've got, and I don't take anything for it. So I endure it. And so it helps strengthen the mind as well. Well, to be sane like you are, you're not. You're not. Kind uh, I'm of not really that this. sane though. Well, but you're not like. <laughs> you're not. But you can still laugh and smile and not, like you don't seem bitter. And, I'm not really bitter. Of, no. I mean, you get cranky like. Anyway. I have my moments. Yeah. Often I get into the car when I suffer really bad days of pain. Mm. I'll get the car, wind up the windows, and I'll scream for ten minutes, scream my head off, mm. uh, and I cry a lot. You know, but I, I don't see anything. I don't, I don't judge emotions. I don't think yeah, yeah. this is a bad emotion. That's a good emotion. They're all emotions, and they're all good. So kind of I'm happy for. to cry and happy to laugh. It's kind of what they're for, right? Yeah. Like, like we often have these displays of emotions for stuff that don't really warrant it. It's mm. like people having a tantrum because their phone did this or that or the other, or getting upset about stuff that doesn't really matter. But situations like that, it, it is a release, right? The emotional responses are there to yeah. to actually do something. Yeah. And I cry at movies. I mean, I'll cry at the hospital all the time. Yeah, right. Because I see patients really suffering yeah. and I start to cry. I just start to cry right in front of them Yeah. because I just I can relate to their suffering. I can relate yeah. to their pain and their fear. I can relate to their fear as well You because know, I've had that fear too where I don't know if I'm going to survive or especially in the early days when the shock of being diagnosed and realising mm. I had to go through well, I didn't. I, thank God, I didn't realize at the time what a bone marrow transplant meant. Yeah, because I wouldn't want anyone else ever to go through it. No, so it's an extra. It's a profound experience. Yeah, I mean, and then you kind of get to the stage where you go, you don't judge experience. You know, it's not a good experience or a bad experience. Like all these experiences that you go through in life are all experiences of consciousness, and one's not better or worse than another. It's just different. And if you see it as being really bad and really negative, um, then it, that's what it will be. Mm. Uh, if you see it as being something that has mm. things to offer, has fruits on the tree, then you'll get some of those fruits too. Mm. So, But it's not easy to think like that or to be mm. like that, but sometimes it's all that keeps you going that's is to be able to do that. Yeah, it's an extraordinary thing about human beings really that we can do that if we want to. We can flip everything. I mean, nothing is, is one, one thing. Now, and there's so Even many the remarkable people situation. around that go through yeah. some serious shit and how they come out the other end, you just go. And often people go, I can never do go through yeah. what you've been through. And you go, you just don't know. Yeah. You can yes. never say that because you don't know till it happens to you what you're capable of. 
yeah. until you're tested. And what you'll learn. Yeah, what that you'll you learn. you may otherwise never learn. That's There's right. So many people, and not that you, you would wish any of this on anyone, but some people go through their lives and can get to the end of their life having never done any work mm. and be faced only with the idea of losing everything. Yeah. Which is really tragic if, yep. if your only option to view it is is just yep. is just a dead end. Yeah. And that's not about afterlife or anything. Mm. It's just about meaning and and, yep. and and how important it all is, you yep. know. So it's fucking strange that that double sided and your I mean, your son's gonna you know, it'll 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 be interesting as he gets older too to understand as he understands you more too. Yeah, I guess. I mean, there's a whole legacy of I've, I've, mm. I have behind me. I mean, my children's book, um, I did a special first edition for him. Mm. He's never even looked at it, never read any of the stories. So I don't, definitely don't push on to him, you know, what I do, what I've done. I just don't bother. But you've got a great you've your your life's very um, tellable. So what I mean is, is as happens with all kids, they're going to get to a stage, whether you're here or not, of of wanting to know about their parents or their father. So one day he's going to go on that quest to know more about what what it all meant for you. Yeah, if that happened, and that would be great because and, oh, and it's there'd guaranteed to be lots of stuff there from. There'd be yeah. lots of stuff there that you could, you could, yeah. you could, because there's been two books now. The first, yeah, book, you've got stuff, and, and the could... third book, and so there's be all that stuff as well as there's mm. lots of public art pieces I've done that you can go and have a look at, and just people who know you. Too, yeah, you so know, like, there's all that there if, I mean, he's, I, if he's interested, but he not, might not be. Interested well, he might not. He might not know. be, but it's like we all think that about after our death, <laughs> yeah. you know. Like, but m- m- most people, like my kids, the odds of them after I die having no interest in who I was oh. are pretty. Slim, uh, like you, at some point you want to reckon <laughs> yeah. with. Not that, it, not that That's that even, true. not that that even matters. Yeah. But it's just, um, it's just that there's, there's, there, there's stuff. Can, that, that, people want to know where where they come from and what what makes mm. them feel that that way. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like yeah. the, the the stepfather might be a really good, I don't know, uh, architect or something mm. like that, yeah. or accountant, uh, right? But the the you know, it happens with adoption. You know, it's like, why, why am I feeling this way? I, you know, my parents have got this set of kind of values or feelings or yeah, priorities, and uh, and it's great to have that 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 knowledge all yeah. the way down. And, such yeah. a and when a six-year-old doesn't show interest, that's no, pretty that's bloody right. normal. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes they're in their twenties or thirties. You yeah. know, like yeah. you, you've got such a strong story and such a that you've cut. You know. There's such extremes. It's it's verging on biblical. Your story, <laughs> biblical. Well, you know, like extremes of kind of, you know, having it all be about your body and physicality and your world so reliant on on what you physically can do, and then to have that taken away from you and forced to face other things. This is this is epic sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, I it's, guess my whole life's been very intense, very full. I've about yeah. to go through a lot of shit. Um, you know, including you know, I had my my building when I built it, yeah. and I had a arson attack, and that I took the the bank to court. It was just all yeah. very stressful and extreme, it's you know. Extreme. And then I somehow survived all that, but I was going through panic attacks and Job. You know the story of Job, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like that. No, so it's, like but a, how long? How long are you going to maintain? You? It might not be God in this case, but it might be just your faith in 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 life or humanity mm, mm, or, or something mm. like these things have been thrown at you like uh, like poor old job yeah 
And are you going to just give up and, and just say, fuck you to everyone? Well, I've got, an, I've got a lot of discipline and I'm a very mm. driven person. Mm. Um, so even now, you know, I get up in the morning and I do exercises. And I'm in pain doing them. Mm. And I, there's no one around. I do them on my own. So I, I'm very self-motivated and self-driven. I always have been. Yeah. And that's probably why I and, you know, had such an intense life so far with everything, um, with my career and everything, making it work. It's been probably that self-drive um, and that discipline. I'm really disciplined because, you know, I was a powerlifter, I was a bodybuilder, you know, I won a title in powerlifting, I won a state title. So t- to do all that stuff in one lifetime takes so much discipline to, to lift all those weights and go and train on yeah. your own and and then transcend that and move on to something else, you to know. With, let's see, this, to bring it all full circle a bit, I mean, that's a big part of why I was drawn to you. Because you had so much um, energy and commitment to the exploration of this art and work, and I hoped some of that would rub off on me. <laughs> you know, like I've, I've been so frightened and distracted and, and well, some of which we know why now, but um, like all my issues and just being around you and your stuff is so uh, in, um, yeah, focused and intensive and interesting because we used to have those conversations while you, yeah. I mean, you'd keep painting, of course, but just about, about you know, philosophical ideas and just about what it is to be um, engaged with your life. So well, I think um, part of the reason I was really driven is because I was brought up with very low self-esteem because I was beaten right. up and my mother was depressed and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so... I felt if I wasn't doing something, I was I was nothing. I was invisible. Right. Mm. So to be to be to feel alive, like a shark, if it stops swimming, it drowns. Mm. That's how I felt. So I felt if I wasn't doing, I was nothing. So mm. I became obsessive and compulsive, and I just could not stop doing all the time. Yeah, but you yeah. also very you gave it out as well, which is because it can go the other way. Some mm. people become that and become very selfish. You always had time for me and to to kind of encourage all that sort of stuff, which is great. You know, we we need to do that. For I always people. loved helping other people. I, I've yeah. gone to a lot of schools and spoken to kids, yeah. done a lot of mentorship and projects in schools as yeah. well because I loved. I still do all that kind of stuff. You know, I think it's so important. That's the flip side to that that driven thing because it mm. can you know if you don't have that element, you can just become a prick, really. Yeah, and being too self. Self-indulged yeah. is yeah. pretty fucking boring, yeah, <laughs> and not helpful to anybody else. That's for sure. Well, maybe you, me, 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 me. If you, you like, know? you know, you probably think it's going to be taken away from you yeah. at some point. Did, before you... before we wind up, do you? I got first of all, we'll get to your uh, what's coming up kind of vibe. If you've got any, have you got anything coming up like exhibitions or any like. Uh, I've been doing a few group shows. I'm doing another solo yeah. show next year. Yeah. So I haven't um, confirmed the dates yet. Yeah. But I'll be doing doing that. So I'm working slowly towards that because I just can't make paintings that quickly anymore. Yeah. And I'm working on these two books. One is a book that's all sn- snippets of my life, it's different stories that friends have been pushing me for years to write. Because yeah. I was a stripper for four years, oh, and yeah. you know, if you chucked around Africa, I've been abducted. So I've been through a lot of shit. So there's all these little stories, but this book's very philosophical. It's not like I was born on this day, blah blah blah. It's not one of those kind of biographies. Yeah. It's a bit yeah, different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just more extracts of stories. Um, and also going through all the cancer stuff and everything. And the other book that I've, because I'm really into trying to do something about the environment, for God's sake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm working with the school strike kids. I approach them and I've been doing trying to get this project off the ground for a while now. My publisher, who published my first two books, 
um, is going to publish this book too. So I'm in the working on that as well as working on the other book. So and between that and the exhibition, I'm, and then yeah, a really... couple more public art pieces as well, hopefully. Oh wow! Um, that's that's the plan at the moment. Well, we'll get the we'll get notes to everything and links up on our mm. show page, and. Uh, I look forward to the the, the biography type book because I think there's got to be. A, I know you, you could help be just a pile of shit. You help a lot of people that are disadvantaged and are suffering. But every time from, I, you're a bit like to, Jack Charles in that way. Every time I sit down with him, there's another yeah. like the stripper stories. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you help a lot of people that are disadvantaged, but I think this book might help a lot of people like yeah. us that are aren't disadvantaged but maybe crippled by normal life and can't maybe can't see you know just can't see yeah how, i'm hoping how good i can get the are. book finished because it's a massive job i've done a lot of work on it already yeah and i'm hoping it can it can somehow touch or affect one person out there it's very honest very open and very you know revealing well I'm definitely our time be- today has definitely touched me i'm mm. yeah i'm inspired i want to read the book Hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It's been great to be on your show yeah, and I appreciate you. you having me. Yeah, man. And I hope it's thank of you. some help to anybody out there. That'd be great if it was. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah thank cool. you. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. See you soon. Awesome podcast was recorded at Castaway Studios in Collingwood. Here, we provide affordable, accessible, professional podcasting production facilities to the full range of podcasters, all the way from basic studio hire right through to full season production packages. You can get us on castawaycollingwood at gmail.com or just look up Castaway Studios on all the social medias.